Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to another episode of From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay, and I'm really honored and happy to have Mitchell Adler here on the show. A uh, little bit of background. Mitchell was in a psychotherapy group with me for a while with Jeff Grossman, which was an earlier um, guest on our show. So he's, he's, woo, he's a personal and professional connection of mine. Um, he's a professor at UC Davis um, in their leadership development program. He's a speaker. Um, he works for his own company called Mind Body Intelligence Consulting, and he's a therapist. And all around great guy. And we're going to talk about ambition. We're going to talk about power. We're going to talk about this drive to always do more and live the best possible optimized life. And something that I'm personally working with all the time. So I have a big stake in this. Mitchell's going to share what it's like to live a good enough life and how he came to that. So Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be here. Yeah. So in the first segment, we talk about the from the ashes story, right? The kind of the personal Thing that brought you to the realization of a good enough life. So can you walk through it for listeners of how you started, where this ambition and, and kind of drive for more came from? Sure. Yeah, it probably starts, you know, like most places start back in the cauldron of the home uh, in my family system where, um, you know, my family was, um, neither of my parents went to college. Uh, my father was a hairdresser and my mom didn't really work. She was a homemaker. And uh, my father always had a, a lot of ambition himself. He had a strong desire to make a lot of money. And that came from, I believe, his sense of scarcity. Like there's a generational scarcity model in the family system. And so there was a lot of fear around never having enough. So in my family system, it was all about making money. And as a hairdresser, you don't make a ton of money. Um, and so eventually he, he ended up owning his own salon. Um, but because he didn't go to school, my mom didn't go to school. And I was like a pretty good student. I was a pretty smart kid. My dad put every ounce of ambition and hope into me as the savior of the family uh, who is going to, by the time I was 30, it was, it was sort of a, a famous thing that in my family is like, by the time you're 30, you will be a multimillionaire and then you can do whatever you want. But like, make sure you do something to make some money. So that was absolutely like part of the like indoctrination mindset and belief is that there's the world doesn't have enough and you have to work really hard to make enough money so that you're safe and then you can do everything you want. But until then, you go. You go and you go hard and you hustle, right? Yeah. How did that impact you growing up? So um, I, was a, actually, I was a pretty anxious kid when it came to school. I was really sociable. I had lots of friends um, and, and did well socially. And I did well academically, but at a real major cost. So, um, and I usually somaticized. So I had like lots and lots of stomach aches. My number one goal in taking the SATs was to make it through the SATs without having to go to the bathroom. I didn't even care what I got as a score. I was so anxious. 
just taking the test, all that sort of anticipatory anxiety would just sit in my body and I'd get like gurgling stomach. Um, and it was, a, it was painful. So it was mostly living in my body as anxiety and as some somaticized stuff. Um, yeah. I'm so curious. Did you know that at the time or was that something that came up later in life that you reflected back? Well, I think I knew I was anxious because it was just clear. Every time I had a test, I would get nervous. I would always do well, but I would over-prepare for everything. Um, that, that's kind of the way that I manage my anxiety is I over-prepare, which meant that like I worked really hard and probably a lot harder than I ever had to work. Uh, and that got in my way, I think, at times. I remember going away for spring break with a friend of mine in high school. And I spent like evenings in Florida while he was like, let's go out, let's go out. I was like studying for the SATs. And it was like ridiculous. What was I doing? I mean, this was my chance to go hang out. But I was, you know, driven to like do well so I could get into a good college because I was the first generation, you know, to go to college. So I, I had to do it. Yeah. So the ambition was birthed from fear and scarcity. So you're kind yeah. of running on that fuel of anxiety that, yeah, it gets a lot of stuff done, but it was just clogging up your system, creating stomach aches, right? Creating like nausea. Literally clogging up the system. Literally clogging up the system, right? Yeah. Like just pollutant, right? A fuel that creates a lot of pollutants. Yeah. So what happened next? Well, then, well, then I ended somewhere. Up, yeah. Well, I ended up going to college and, and did really well. And I was like thinking business school. I wanted to go to, you know, so I picked University of Michigan mostly because a friend of mine, I, he invited me to go for a weekend when we were in college to go visit it in Ann Arbor. And I had the best weekend of my life. I'm like, I'll go here. And they had a great business school. And I took my first economics class and it's the only C I got in college. I got pretty much A's and everything else. Um, but I just did not like economics. And I took a psychology class and it was just like the heavens opened up. I'm like, this is incredible. So I, I thought like, okay, I'll, I'll major in psychology, which was a huge blow to my dad. Like he was demolished by this idea that I would not want to go into business, but I, I needed to follow kind of my bliss. So I became a psych major and graduated with distinction. And my first job when I graduated was as a waiter in Pizza Hut because I did not plan for graduating. Like I didn't know what to do. I like, I had no one helping me figure that out. Right. You got as far as like, try as hard you can in school. But once that system fades away, it's like, then, then what, what do the you hell do? do? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are in that place. Can you, can you walk you back to the, the major switching moment? Yeah. Because that's like undoing so much of that fear and scarcity yes. that you felt. I mean, that must've been a difficult decision to make. Uh, it was, and it took me two years to do it because I knew, I knew within like the first semester that that's what I wanted to do, but it took me two years to tell my father because I just, first of all, I was afraid he was going to not pay for college. Um, and then I just didn't know in myself how to like, uh, make sense of it because I was like, okay, well, how are you going to make money? I didn't even think about being a psychologist. Mm -hmm. I just loved studying psychology. So you know, it really became about getting in touch with my sense of values and my integrity and trying to figure out what do I want for myself, which has consistently been a theme in my life. You know, like I get pulled out of what I want for myself, kind of going back to old scripts in my head that constantly pop up. And this was one of the first major times that I, I jumped out of the script and realized I had my own choice to make. And so it was a big deal. And my dad was open to it but it wasn't a good conversation. It wasn't friendly. I mean, it wasn't comfortable. Yeah. 
Yeah. Did he ever come around to see the path? Because, you know, you're choosing like your heart, right? And your soul over the cash. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is he is incredibly proud of me now. Like he thinks I'm like the shit, even though I don't have that many millions of dollars, like as many as he wanted, but he knows I'm, you know, absolutely successful enough. But he went through years, years of sadness and grief that we've talked about and processed about my not becoming an investment banker um, and, you know, making $30 million by the time I was 30, because I worked for a banking investing firm right before college that summer, did well. You know, they were like, we'll hire you back when you're done. And um, I just didn't want to do it. So we, I've been dealing with that grief forever. But I went in, in a really different direction. I took six years off doing undergrad and graduate school. And so I, I had, you know, I graduated work for Pizza Hut for the summer so I could make enough money to move out to California because I loved film and movies. And that was the only thing I could think of to do. So a buddy of mine, like, decided we'd move out to L.A. I grew up in New York. And we, I drove out to LA with $5,000 that I made from like a summer working at Pizza Hut. And from like, I was a caddy for like three or four summers before that, saved up my money and I moved out to LA and I ended up finding some work in film. Yeah. What was that like? Tell us the next chapter. Oh yeah. Well, it was, it was a, a whole other world. world. It was a totally different world. Yeah. I have a number of different distinct worlds. Mm-hmm. So this one was, um, so I called everybody. I didn't have a job going there, which was ridiculous. I found, um, I got a job working for a post-production house. And then I got a job working on Tales from the Crypt, mm-hmm. an old HBO show. It was yeah. like sort of a cheesy horror thing, but it was really fun. I got to meet Tom Hanks and like lots of other, I met Judd Nelson. And back then it was like the Breakfast Club it was like awesome. So, um, you know, it was a cool experience. And then I got this really great job working for a pretty big Hollywood producer who worked on the Warner Brothers lot. And I was an executive assistant to the vice president of that company. And I had like, felt like I made it. I was on the Warner brothers lot. I had my parking spot on the lot with my name on it. And I was like making pretty good money at 24, uh, 23 even. And I was like, all right, I I kind of made it. And then um, I realized that this guy ran his organization by fear. He just scared the crap out of everyone to make him do whatever he wanted. And it was a really stressful environment. And I started to feel a feeling that was very reminiscent of what it was like in my household growing up. My dad was, there were some anger issues. He's a great guy. I love him dearly, but he was a, he was a bit of an animal when I was younger and had a lot of aggression and he was scary. And I had a lot of similar feelings when this guy would walk into the building. And after about four months of working at this like highly prestigious job, um, I went to a Tracy Chapman concert. This is a crazy story. So I went to a, see Tracy Chapman um, in LA at, and I, I got these great seats because I worked for a great producer and I got fourth row center and she sings this one song called All You Have Is Your Soul. And she was singing this song and I'm telling you, this is totally like what I experienced. She was looking right at me. And the oh. song is like, all that you have is your soul. She just keeps repeating it over and over again. And I went in the next day and I quit. I gave two weeks notice. Wow. That's like a, that's like a spiritual moment. It, it was, it was, it was one of a few epiphanies of my life. Yeah. And so that one really changed my life um, because I realized like, I can't, I have a choice again. It's like, I have a choice. I don't have to live in an environment or work in an environment that I'm choosing to be in. That makes me feel terrible. 
and that feels like a culture I don't really jive with. I mean, I love TV and film, but I didn't need to be surrounded by the kinds of people I was finding myself around. Yeah. And like you said, it's a continuation of that pattern of getting dragged into other people's stories, right? Losing yourself for a moment, whether it be for belonging or money or fame or whatever the motivator was, fear, right? Scarcity. Yeah. And losing, yeah, losing your soul, losing your own inner compass. Well, the fear, money, and fame, I mean, the the money and the fame were, were really big draws. I mean, they were like huge... It was, it was just such a huge, I'm just thinking of like the fish in the water on the hook. I was hooked by it. You know, I was blinded by, by all of that. So, you know, I, I was pretty impulsive in making the decision to quit and I didn't have a job. And so I was scrounging for work and I ended up finding a job teaching math and science to fifth and sixth grade immigrant kids from Iran and Russia. Giant pivot. Yeah. Whole other world. It was insane. It was very different than anything I'd ever done. And I actually loved it. It was really hard, but I loved working with the kids. And I felt I was um, doing something meaningful that felt really good for my heart. And so I decided like, I'm not going back to film. And then I realized if I'm not gonna go back to film, I need to get out of LA. And so I moved up to the Bay Area and got a job directing a countywide youth program that again was like really fun and really engaging. Um, and I got a lot from it. So I realized then that like, I liked working with people and I liked helping people and I liked doing things that meant something. And, uh, I met my wife and, um, then I need to figure out what to do. So I decided to go to graduate school. It took me six years, had a little bit of a breakdown when I realized my 10 year high school reunion would be coming up, uh, pretty soon. I'm like, what the hell am I doing with my life? And so instead of getting an MBA, which I was thinking for like four years in a row, I got a doctoral in clinical psychology ended up um, having a great experience there, got to co-author a book on emotional intelligence with a, with a professor of mine. And that parlayed my work into um, a career, both as a clinical psychologist and then as a professional consultant and speaker. So there's lots more to that story, but I, I figured I'd give you a little chance to check in. Yeah. I mean, that's a big acceleration there, but it sounds like you're finally following, not finally, I guess, again, following your inner compass, right? And your inner soul and moving more people focused, moving more healing focused. Yes. So the realization in working both with the kids that I was teaching and then the kids that I was directing this youth program with, I just realized that relationships were everything Mm -hmm. that making sense of like how to connect with people, helping them find their way in the world, that role uh, was deeply meaningful to me. And I knew at that point that that was much more important to me than just trying to either make money or just trying to, you know, like as fast as I can or to be famous. Although the famous desire didn't really change. It just like was morphing at the time. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Like, did you change your fuel source or did you move from that anxiety, fear, scarcity to something else? Yeah. So the, 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 so I did, I wrote a personal mission statement when I decided to build my, um, my business, just like every organization has a mission statement. I had a personal mission statement and that really helped me to get clear about what my values and integrity were. And I was really committed to doing things that felt in line with my values and integrity, but that was really in conflict with this, this internal drive to make money and to be famous, like to make, maybe make my dad proud, 
to feel adored or to feel like I was loved or that I mattered enough. Like there's something inside of me that I, I think that was the driving force. And I had an experience, you know, I started giving talks um, because of this book and I have a video that kind of went viral. It's got like close to a million views um, on leading with emotional intelligence. And that really parlayed me to get these talking opportunities, some of which, which were paying me at some point, like tens of thousands of dollars for an hour long talk. And I was loving the talking that I was doing, the speaking I was doing until I started getting paid a lot of money. And as soon as I started getting paid a lot of money, I started feeling all this pressure, this pressure to perform and to do really well. Um, and I lost my creative edge and I fell into kind of like a depression as a result of, of like an incident that took place. If we have time later, we could talk about it. But, um, and I just realized that I need to get back to ground zero, which was really my family. I have a wife and two kids who I absolutely adore. And I really wanted to spend a lot more time with. And so my energy started getting focused on like the basics, like what do I really want in my life? And it really became about my family. It became about doing work that feels really meaningful to me and accepting that the money will come uh, as I regulate this relationship of what is good enough, what is enough in general. Yeah, that's a great story. I think some of the listeners can really connect to this kind of swing out away from yourself and then back towards yourself and then out away and back towards these recalibrations that sounds like you went through multiple times in your life. We're going to move to our commercial now, but in the next segment, we'll talk about that a little bit more. I'm curious how you define a good enough life now and talk about, you know, kind of that draw of whether it be anxiety, scarcity, power, fame, that I think gets a lot of people stuck. So if you're listening out there, thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you on the other side of the commercial break. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C, dash, azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot, teachable, dot com. Are you disenchanted by the saccharine-laced stories that you were told when you were younger? Behind every success, there is a hidden journey filled with triumph and defeat. On From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay, you'll hear about the challenges that our guests had to overcome to become the successful people that they are today. Listen live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.
listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to From the Ashes. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay. And we're here with Mitchell Adler, and we're just talking about the good enough life. So I want to dive right into that. It sounds like you went through many different swings of being, you know, taken by power, ambition, you know, scarcity, fear, anxiety, and then having to come back to center over and over again. And I'm interested if you could define for our listeners what the good enough life means to you. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's actually a great question. Um, so, so for me, I think about it as like. Well, so I, I do some work in this area of like hunger and longing. I think a lot theoretically about hunger and longing. We all have a desire to eat, right? That keeps us alive. And our hunger is a life force. And so I have, you know, a good life force, a lot of hunger inside of me. But there's a, like, you can eat, you can eat too much. And you, you know, if you don't, if you're not paying attention to what's going on inside your body and you just start eating because you notice yourself feeling hungry, but don't pay attention to the satiation experiences, what like they'll call interoception, being able to perceive our internal like systems, then you can overeat. And I would say that I spent a lot of time in my life overeating in this, not physically like, but it, but emotionally and spiritually and like exercise work-wise. And the good enough life to me is like really paying attention to when you start to notice your system um, getting towards the edge and recognizing when you've hit that satiety, like you're satiated, you've gotten enough because there's, there's always more to have. I mean, our culture is constantly telling us like more, be more, get more. And uh, I'm always trying to pay attention to like, where is that limit? Because if it was up to my dad, I'd, I'd be making just more money. And that's still in me. So I have to have to figure out where that ceiling is for me. Yeah. I'm, I want to hear more about that. I, I don't think I told you this during our pre-call, but my uh, therapist in Boulder, second therapist head of my life, right? Mm-hmm. And our first session, right? I talk for whatever, 50 minutes. I don't think I let him say anything. Uh-huh. And the last thing he says to me is, the question you're going to be working with is what is good enough. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he just called it. And that's true. So I'm very much on board where I either want to be perfect all the time or optimize or just find more it's difficult to know where that line is on good enoughness. Yes. Well, I'll give you a story actually that happened to me probably about I don't know, seven, 10 years ago. I was working out of the gym and uh, you know, they have the TVs going and I see this commercial and it's a commercial for like some workout thing. And they show this guy and he's working out and I'm looking at, I'm looking at him like, Hey, he's in pretty good shape. Like, all right, I could see that, you know? And then they, they cut to another scene and it turns out that what I was looking at was his before picture. Then they show the after picture and he's like this freaking ripped guy. And I'm sitting there watching and I'm like working, I'm in pretty decent shape. I'm pretty athletic and have like always enjoyed being physically active. And I started having this feeling of like, maybe I should be getting more ripped. Like maybe I should get like a six pack. And I'm thinking like, wait a second, what am I doing? First of all, the, the first guy looked fine. He looked like he had like, like better than probably like dad bod. And I'm sitting here now I'm 52. Then I was probably like 45. I'm like, dude, 
you are in good enough shape. You don't need to get more ripped. You just need to stay in shape, which is all I wanted to do. But I was getting sucked into this like thing that I'm getting sold that I needed to be more, which is everywhere. I see it everywhere. And it's those images and messages I contend with both internally from my family, from culture, um, and then just the way I've been reinforced in my life that like, you know, I do relatively well. People say you're great. And then I want more of that. So I have to pay attention to that all the time to recognize, no, it's good enough. I don't need to work out more. I don't need to make more money. I don't need to be better at this. I can actually try to enjoy what I'm doing as well. Yeah. I really want to highlight what you're saying here is that it's across almost every dimension. It's not just more money. Like you said, it's, it's more athleticism. It's, you know, having the perfect kids, it's having the perfect relationship with your wife, finding true love, you know, yeah. having like the best spiritual connection in the world, right? Like being mentally balanced and still and being like a stoic philosopher. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. There's right. always this idea of more, 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 more. Yes. And, and, you know, I'm definitely a recovering perfectionist and like once in recovery, always in recovery, like I definitely have to constantly pay attention to my perfectionist tendencies. Mm -hmm. And so I know I'm like profoundly imperfect. Um, but I'm also like super competitive, um, and super ambitious. And I enjoy that part of myself when it's, it's like tempered with the sort of self-regulation, self-awareness, remembering my values, remembering like what I want out of the world, that always ends up helping me get tethered, um, which is why I think it's so helpful that I wrote a personal mission statement for myself because I go back to it at least once a year to like sort of reevaluate, is this fitting? You know, when I had kids, it shifted a lot for me because that be that's such a priority for me. And it just changed everything around, like how much I wanted my career to fly. And it's like, I really just wanted to be a great dad. Certainly a good enough dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm curious. I don't know if you've access to it easily now, but what is in the personal mission statement? Like what's the, what's the current thing on your docket? Yeah, well, I have two, two forms of a personal mission statement. One of them is a leadership mission statement. And then one of them is a general one. And I, mine's much longer than anyone's probably should be. But it mostly talks about like what I want out of my life, um, you know, what, what values I have. So I'll give you an example. I actually have a little bit of it here. So I have a financial section of it. I'll just give you a brief sense of what some of it says. So for financial, make enough money to live comfortably and not worry about finances, but be realistic and know when enough is enough. It's better to live life than to make a lot of money for money's sake. Basically, I say to myself, don't let money be a primary goal in and of itself. Let the money, uh, let what I want the money to provide be the goal. Mm -hmm. And I need to say that to myself yeah. over and over again, because when, you know, I get a talk and it's like somewhere else in the country, but my kid has something coming up that weekend, or I see it coming down the pike. I don't want to take the money. I don't care how much it is. It's not worth missing my kids like lacrosse tournament. Like, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So, right. There's no price on that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that extra money isn't going to actually change my life. Whereas in some ways I used to think it would change my soul mm -hmm. like for the yeah. better, which is crazy. Right. Whereas the opposite is true, right? Like missing your kids lacrosse tournament is going to change your life for the worse. Right. Right. Which I, you know, that, that is, and, and in some ways I, there are times, cause I could get into perfectionism about being a parent too. Like I, I have, given up a lot of things for my kids 
that at times my kids are like, you don't need to be at this recital. You don't need to be at this thing. Um, when they see me rushing from one thing to the next, because, you know, I don't actually need to be at everything that they do, but I can get caught in that too. So I can get to perfectionism as being a parent as well. And I do know that all I need to be is a good enough parent. Yeah. Can you say more about the good enough parenting? Because I think you know, I, I fall into this as a therapist too. It's so easy to blame parents and see parents' mistakes and be like, oh, you're going to mess up your kid if you don't do perfect, if you don't do well enough, if you miss a tune in this moment. You know, people have these memories of something bad that happened that seems to trickle out for, you know, the rest of their lives. And from the parents I work with that are, you know, psychologically savvy, they're like, that's an unbelievable amount of pressure to think that I need to always be perfect and need to always be present for my child. And it's just not, just not possible. Yeah. I, I, I am with you 100%. So I'll tell you a piece of research that came out that I found to be probably the most soothing thing I've ever experienced in my life as a parent. Uh, it's, um, it's research that showed that to raise a securely attached child, the parent needs to be attuned to their child about one third of the time. So two thirds of the time, you can actually be completely missing your kid and you can still raise a securely attached child. The key, however, was that the parent has to be interested and attuned enough to recognize when they're misattuned. So when they miss their kid and they have to work to repair it. So like, you know, when they have infants, you know, the baby's crying. And so you try to like change their diaper. It turns out they're still crying. It's like, oh, okay, shit, I, I missed that. That happens. Um, so like, okay, I'll try to give you some food. That's not working either. Oh, maybe you are too warm. And so you take some clothes off and then they're, they're calm. Now, if you stop after the first thing when you didn't get it and you'd be like, ah, the baby's a pain in the ass, I'm going to walk away, then yeah, the kid is going to like not get enough of their needs met. But you can make the mistakes and you can repair with your kid. You can just reconnect. I mess up with my kids all the time. But all I have to do is just know that I can talk to them. I can repair when I make a mistake. I do something I don't like. We just talk about it. And it's incredibly healing for me. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you made that sound so easy. That is like a superpower, right? To be, to have a parent. I mean, I, some ways I'm jealous. I wish I had a parent like that, that would say, Hey, I missed you there. Or, Hey, like what I did was not cool. What do you think about that? You know, or, Hey, how could I parent you better? Something like that. Right. Especially as the kid gets older and develops preferences, right. I'm imagining like teenage years and things like that. I think what you're prescribing is, is quite powerful. Well, it's liberating too. So I do feel like as a parent and as a therapist, I feel really liberated because I know I'm going to make mistakes. So I don't usually beat myself up too much when I do, unless I do something really egregious, I can certainly feel guilty. I try not to go to shame, but like I can feel guilty when I make a mistake, but I have a, like, I have, you have so many opportunities with kids to repair. And I just know that like, I want to repair. They matter to me and I want to repair. And with my clients, it's the same thing. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to miss, I'm going to be misattuned. I don't have any expectations. I'm supposed to get it. And that really loosens me up to then be available when I do make the mistake to hear the impact and to talk that through. And, and actually like, I feel so much freer and liberated, whereas giving, giving talks is much more stressful for me because it's connected to this money. It's connected to this fame. It's connected to this, other stuff that's more ego-based. And that really messes with me when I don't have it under control. Yeah. And I'd imagine there's not really a chance for repair because it's, it's a one-time delivery. It's not like a long-term relationship. 
Exactly. Exactly. Right. So I've worked with some organizations over a longer period of time, and it's actually a lot easier for me um, because I can build relationships. I mean, I say something that they were like confused about or didn't like, we could talk about it. In fact, oftentimes the repair is the lesson, right? But if you're, if you only have that one opportunity, uh, it can, it could be a lot. That's why I can't even imagine what it's like to date these days. You know, you go out on dates and it's like, you really get anxious about it and then it doesn't really work and you get that one shot and they're done. I'm like, well, <laughs> I've been with my wife for like 28 years. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. <laughs> it definitely sucks. Yeah. It definitely sucks. Uh, but yeah, it, I like what you're saying here because the repair and the rupture can be the learning can be yes. the opportunity. Right. And I think we were talking about something that I encourage the people I work with too, is if you are truly open, don't think things personally, you're going to learn more through the repair. And it sounds like you're saying something very similar because yeah, you're literally learning something that you made an assumption about. Yeah. In fact, it's like uh, some of the greatest grow- growth I get is when I make these mistakes with my kids or with my clients, with friends, uh, where I stay open to their responsiveness. And I usually learn something about myself. So it's either like, either I learn something about myself um, you know, we figure out, I learned something about them or, uh, you know, it gets a little weird <laughs> and that can happen too. because sometimes people like, you know, people just can't see you or understand where you're from or where you're coming from. And that can be painful. Um, but for the most part, it's, I find it wonderful. That's why I love this work. Yeah. I think that's great because yeah, like some people are not open to it, but I've always been surprised of how open people can be if you open the door first. Right. Uh-huh. If we step through the door first, for people are like, oh, my God, thank you for talking about this. It's something yeah. that I've been thinking about for a long time, too. Yeah. The scariest part for me is when when I don't have faith that the people will tell me when something when there's like something awry in the relationship. That to me is the worst. Like I indoctrinate my clients really, really early from the first session. I say, like, if I say anything that, you know, doesn't seem like it fits or matches or certainly if it says if I say anything that like hurts or, you know, offends or something, please tell me it's like super helpful. Um, and if I get defensive, I want you to call me on it. I want you to say like, you told me to be open and here I am telling you, and you're being defensive. Just tell me because that's going to really be the, the, the golden road to us understanding each other. Absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned during our break, you want to bring in regulation. Is this yeah. part of that of how you regulate with another person? Absolutely. With other people. Um, yeah, I think, I think about regulation in terms of like a window of tolerance, which is this idea of like, you know, we can either get overstimulated or understimulated. And if we're too overstimulated or understimulated, then um, we can't really function very well. Um, you know, we're kind of offline. So I know in my relationships, I'm always paying attention to where I am in that window of tolerance. And, um, you know, I can get very anxious when I feel like someone is holding something back that I feel is going on between us. And I ask and they're like, oh no, nothing's wrong. But every other sign is telling me something is wrong. Uh, I can get very dysregulated by that. And so, you know, I have to do my own self-care and self-regulation around that. And then I try to work it in the relationship when I can. And the biggest thing for me is like doing that with myself when I have certain tasks that scare me, you know, whether it's like giving a big talk or, you know, even coming on this, on this podcast, you know, I was super excited about it, but it's also like, you get so excited, it can be dysregulating. So, you know, having to breathe before I came on. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true. And I share the thing with you of being dysregulated by unspoken tension. The way I always see it is like, you know, there's a hidden knife somewhere in the relationship or somewhere in the group, or there's something going on that part of my body knows is not right, but nobody's talking about it. I think that happens a lot in social dynamics. I think it takes a lot of courage, like you said, to overcome that fear and say the thing. Yes. Naming, naming the difficult things that are taking place in the relational space is huge. Yeah. Essential. That's yeah, it's essential. I think it's a lifelong practice. I'm happy that you brought that up. Yeah. Absolutely. So we're going to move into our final segment here where we talk directly to listeners. If you, you know, resonate with any of Mitchell's story or want to learn more. So if you're interested in that, hang on. I'll see you on the other side of the commercial break. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y.teachable.com. Are you disenchanted by the saccharine-laced stories that you were told when you were younger? Behind every success, there is a hidden journey filled with triumph and defeat. On From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay, you'll hear about the challenges that our guests had to overcome to become the successful people that they are today. Listen live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to our final segment of From the Ashes. In this segment, we talk directly to you, the listeners, So if you have been listening and you find yourself caught up in this power, anxiety, scarcity, kind of more, more, more cycle, tune in. So Mitchell, what would you say to somebody who is stuck there? Mm -hmm. First, I would say I understand, (laughs) or at least I get something around it. Um, And and I think there's a lot that can be done with it. Um, I think that, you know, the anxiety stuff is one thing, but I think being ambitious and striving is a great thing. I just think it's wonderful, but it's, it's like anything. If you have raw power, 
you want to figure out how to harness it. And so in my opinion, one of the best ways to harness that is to really understand um, how it can get contained. And that's usually within our sense of values and beliefs, which is why I, you know, I'm such a big proponent of having a personal mission statement, which, you know, every organization worth its weight has one. I figure every human being should have a personal mission statement. And so what I mean by that, should I give a little bit of an idea of what that might look like? For sure. Yeah. If there's like a quick step-by-step process that people start to yeah, think so, about what that would look like. Yeah. It's, so it's basically a set of your values and beliefs. It's your guiding principles of why you do what you do. And so what I would encourage people to do is to basically list out like, what are, the, what are your primary values? Think maybe like five or six of your most valued values. Uh, what are your belief systems of how you want to be in the world? Think about like at your eulogy, what would you want people to say about you as a person? Now, these aren't goals. This isn't like specific, measurable, action-oriented, realistic timeframe, smart goals. I'm talking about like your true north idea. These are um, aspirational values that you're never going to attain for good. You're always searching for it. They're intentional goals or values that you want to live by as opposed to being goal-driven, it's values-driven. And so it's like three to five sentences could literally describe, you know, what your values are and how you want to be living your life. So when you feel a little bit lost, you have like an ethical dilemma, you can just go to your mission statement and be like, oh yeah, I want to live my life with some, you know, sense of trust and integrity and self-compassion. Excellent. Remember that when you make your choice. Yeah. I, I love hearing that. I, I do a version of that um, called Purpose and Principles from David Allen's Getting Things Done system. So I have I have the document like that as well. And with my my clients, one of the pillars that I help them to cultivate is honor. And the way I talk about honor, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this, is that honor only really matters when it's challenged, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you talked about that at the end of your statement. It's like, it's one thing to write it, which is very powerful, but it's another thing yeah. to consult it in those times when you are faced with something that would betray your values or something that would corrupt your vision. Can you say a little bit more about that, how you might use it in practice? Absolutely. That's, it's a great point. First of all, I do think people should be writing it down. So people will say, oh yeah, no, I got it. I understand. It's like, no, 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 no. You have to write it down because when you write down your personal mission statement, number one, you have a concrete document. It holds us more accountable. And it's not just a floating around idea. It's concrete and we have to commit to it in a way. And again, it's committing aspirationally. But yes, I think that turning to, I mean, I have ethical dilemmas all the time. And these dilemmas just inside myself because I hear my, you know, my dad's voice or my historical voice, my perfectionist voice. Um, and I have to go back to what are my like real principles? And I say, I go back at least once a year, even if I haven't checked it, but I do look at it probably a few times a year, just when I feel like, boy, what, what do I really believe in again? Because this thing is pulling me in directions that feel, it doesn't feel good or I feel confused. So I think that actually challenging yourself to hold to the ideas that you put down on paper um, is a form of honor, honoring yourself. And, and it, takes, it takes courage to do it. Yeah, I think it takes real courage. It takes real courage to kind of fight under your own banner is the way that my mind is kind of framing this, right? Of like, this mm-hmm. is the cause that I believe in. This is what I believe a good life is, a good enough life. This yeah. is, you know, the type of person that I want to be and I want out there in the world. So it's going to take courage to overcome. Because often the, the temptation, like you said, with the speaking career, it's 
really good sometimes, right? It's a ton of money. It's fame. It's, it's ambition. It's meeting those unmet needs from childhood to go a level deeper. But it's the yeah. idea of, okay, how do I put that aside and stick with being the person who I want to be? That's right. And, you know, part of that is I only, I only speak for organizations. I believe in what they do. Like there have been some organizations that have reached out and I've said no, because I just don't really stand by what they do. And I don't really want to be associated with it. Um, and I also really only speak on topics that feel really meaningful and passionate, like inside myself and that I'm, I can find that I really want to do. Like I had to stop talking about a few topics because I was like an old hack um, comedian who's using the same material from like 10 years ago and they're still going on the rounds. Like I started to feel really crappy about myself, you know, just putting out, even though some of it was really good material that can still work. It just started to feel kind of stale. And uh, I almost needed to like start working for less money so that I could, you know, remember what it's like, like comedians going out and doing, you know, their short, uh, you know, like, like open mic nights for nothing to like work new material. It's like, I have to do that again. Like I had to do that in order to start building new things, which is like, again, in line with my integrity. Yeah. And you have to get the creative juices flowing again by introducing, like lowering the stakes and not just resting on your laurels, you know? Yes. Because when the stakes are too high, I absolutely default to old stuff. In the same way, when I play sports, when the, when like I play pickleball right now, it's a big thing for me. I've been playing like since the pandemic and whenever I get close on a game, I start going to like old bad habits that were reliable, but they're not the ones that give me more power, that give me more, you know, um, accuracy, but they feel safer. So I go back to safe when I get scared. And that's really helpful for me to know my own self-awareness that when I get scared, I'm going to try to be safe. And so if I want to take risks, I need to feel safer inside myself or have a self-talk that helps me to feel more grounded so I can be more creative and take risks. Yeah. Yeah. Say more about that. Because the way that I've heard that framed is working with your mind, right? Understanding your psychology, understanding kind of your internal emotional user manual, and then developing strategies that work with, with yourself. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that absolutely makes sense to me. I'm a, I would say that self-awareness is kind of the key. It's key for me. It's key for my clients because when we have more self-awareness, we can start to make informed choices about what we want. And um, I think it also means like owning our shadow pieces, our darker parts. So I know my competitive stuff. I know my fear of failure. I know my fear of, um, you know, humiliation. And I have to come to grips with those fears if I want to engage things at another level. Otherwise, I'll always stay safe, which I'm actually fine with at times. I love resting on laurels for a while. And I only want to stop resting on them when they don't feel good anymore. And so to me, like people say, like, you should always be improving. It's like, well, I think you should only be improving if you feel like you really need to be improving. I don't think we need to improve just for the sake of it. And so I have to pay attention to those voices inside my head that say, always get better, always improve. And it's like, you know what? Sometimes I really like just chilling. And I think that's okay. I don't think a good enough life is a life of mediocrity. I think it's a life of like meaningful relationship with ourselves to push ourselves as much as we want to be pushed, as opposed to letting all the outside forces or old and old internalized voices pushing us in ways we don't necessarily want. That's really well said. And having that mindful awareness to know when the laurels become uncomfortable. 
right? To know uh-huh. when, when that's not working either. So I'm curious, what would you recommend for somebody that wants to do some more of that deeper work? Because it's, it's a task, right? To separate out, you know, societal messages, to separate out old childhood messages, to separate out all these other pressures from authority figures, a boss, for instance, or a teacher or something like that, and trying to figure out who they really are. It's something that I think us as therapists throw around a lot. And I always ask therapists this question of like, okay, how do you actually know who you truly are? How do you find who you truly are? Yeah. Cause it's, well, that's a good question. So first I've been keeping a journal since I'm uh, 19 years old. I have a box in my closet that literally is filled with journals. I've got thousands and thousands of pages written. Um, and most of that is just me processing shit, just writing about what I'm thinking stream of conscious. I have no intention of anyone seeing it or reading it. I'll probably burn it before I die. If I can have the wherewithal, I'll do it. Um, because it's really just me trying to make sense of, of who I am and what's going on for me. And then I'm also a really big proponent of therapy. Obviously I've been in, in and out of therapy for the last 30 years. Uh, I continue to, you know, want to be in and out of therapy throughout that time. Um, I believe in being open and vulnerable with friends and people who are close to us and talking out what's going on in our lives. And I'm a really big proponent of asking for help when we feel stuck. Um, you know, some people can go to places of shame uh, around feeling like they have to be radically independent and don't really need others. But I think like we're social mammals. We need other people in our lives. And I think the reason why we do as well as we do as a species is because we rely on others. So I think figuring out how to be adaptively dependent is really useful. Yeah, that message can't get said enough. You know, I work with a lot of men in my practice and the idea of asking for help being seen as weakness or being seen as something that would be taken advantage of. It's just so pervasive in our culture. But I say something very similar to what you said of like, hey, civilization was built on people collaborating and asking for help. Like that's, again, that's what makes us awesome. That's what makes us kind of the apex of this planet is the ability to collaborate. Uh, I'm curious, how how do you think we lost that? Yeah, well, certainly in Western culture with this like sort of radical individualist ideology and the sort of capitalist, I don't you know, want to go on a tirade about that, but like, you know, sort of the capitalist ideology is like more, 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 grow, 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 me, me, me. And it really doesn't speak to uh, the idea of us being interdependent. Like if interdependent works for capitalism, great. But the message is just like, get more for you and fight, 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 fight. And I just think that that is sort of against a lot of what we as social mammals do. It's certainly part of our individual instinct but but as social mammals like we just do better in tribes we do better in smaller groups and we do better when we're open to feedback because none of us want to be ostracized from our groups that's how you die evolutionarily right you get ostracized from your tribe and you die out in the woods um in some way we could be independent these days you can like live in your house and never leave work on your computer and make a lot of money Um, but you're going to feel pretty, I think, void at some point, at least most of us are going to feel somewhat empty and and miss out on a lot. Yeah. I think to link it to what we were talking about in the first segment, you talked about, you know, thinking about, you know, hunger, about craving, about loneliness. And I'm hearing that, I think that separation creates more of that hunger, more of that more, 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 right. Trying to like fill the void, fill the, the lack with, more money, more six packs, right? Like 
a more attractive partner, whatever, right? Like, but it's not hitting the core need. Yeah. Well, that fits with like, so I'm not a Lacanian therapist at all, but like the French um, psychologist uh, Lacan speaks about like everything that we do comes from a lack. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we, we don't do anything unless we feel some form of a lack inside of us that we're trying to fill. And so that's what the hunger and longing idea really comes from is this idea that we're, we're usually lacking something that makes us want to get. The question is like, what do we want to get? Are we being mindful about what we're trying to strive for? And that's the part that I, I really want for folks who are listening and for myself constantly is like paying attention to like, why am I striving for this? What is it really about for me? And does it feed me in a way that's sustainable? Like, I really like the idea of sustainability as opposed to, you know, just like hardcore balls to the wall going like you're, you know, I think of it more as marathon than as sprints, even though I sprint at times in these marathons, but I need the recovery. Absolutely. And I think creating active recovery is critical, letting people know how they can just bring themselves back to center. Like you said, right, when your pendulum swings out too far during a sprint, which isn't all bad. Right. Like it does bring good things into your life. How do you recover and come back to who you are? Yes. Yeah. And using that metaphor, like, I mean, I play basketball and I play ultimate, like I like to chase things. There are people who like to, you know, run marathons. I find that quite boring. I I, I like lose my mind. So we have to figure out for ourselves, like, what are the way that we like to play? How do we like to use our energy? And And if you find what you enjoy, um, you know, at least for me, they'll use sports as a metaphor. If someone said to me, you have to stay in shape by running, I'm not going to stay in shape because I won't stick with it. But if you say you get to stay in shape by playing basketball, pickleball, ultimate Frisbee, I'm all for it. So we have to find the things that are, are more intrinsically oriented in order to get it. Um, obviously, sometimes we can't just do things. Sometimes I do just go for a run because bad weather, I can't find a basketball game and I just go for a run and you suck it up and you know sometimes do that. And that's part of life. Yeah, it's great. I like the idea of being mindful and again, like working with your mind, knowing who you are and trying to create a life that benefits that rather than living a life for somebody else. So Mitchell, we got to wrap up here. The show always goes by really fast. Can let people know where they might find you online if they want to learn more about you? Sure. Um, So I have a website. It's mitchelladler.com. Mitchell with one L, a unique name. Um, So yeah, they can find me there. Um, That's probably the best place. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining on the show. If you're a listener out there, we're trying to promote this podcast. Give us five-star reviews on iTunes. You know, it always helps. Sharing it with someone that you think might benefit from the message that Mitchell's trying to share, that's trying to live a good enough life or, you know, deconstruct this power, ambition, uh, more, more, more mentality. And thank you so much for joining us. So I'll see you next week on another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.